Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast includes explicit language. Hi, I'm Joel Anderson, Slate staff writer, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 17th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the Knicks managing to be relevant and good for the first time in a long time, the start of the WNBA season, and the very dark, drug-fueled cloud following controversial trainer Bob Baffert and Kentucky Derby winner Medina Spirit. Stefan is out this week and the next. But we're going to make up for it by having guests for every single segment this week, delivering on Josh's promise to keep our audience off balance. Uh, I'm in Palo Alto, California, and I'm the host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Slow Burn Season 6 on the 1992 LA riots in D.C. We're going from west to east this time. It's Josh Levine. He's the author of The Queen and the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Josh, good morning. Nice to be here with you, Joel. And I'm glad that uh, the West Coast gets to go first for once in life. It's just n- nice for you to have a moment in the sun. We normally don't mind following the East Coast. This this time zone has actually been very good for me, except on days when I have to record this podcast. But other than that, it's not been bad. We should talk about, because you know I'm going to use this time to just praise you. All of the time, like I did last week when we talked about, you know, your your, your piece that ran in Slate. Okay. Uh, but let's talk about your one-year podcast, because they just announced it at the IAB. I don't know what those uh, that acronym stands for, but it has something to do with podcasts and new shows. Uh, you have a new podcast coming yes, out. Yes, IAB, so. it stands for podcasts. The, the yes. I, A, and B all stand for podcasts. Yeah, so you've got a new show coming out called One Year, the premise of which that it's going to be a look each season a different year in American history, telling a bunch of different stories that defined that year in different ways. So politics, culture, science, sports. I'm really excited about it. The first year is 1977 and a bunch of weird, different stuff that you're not expecting. Uh, I can't will, remember uh, anything that happened in, in, 1990, in 1977. Who won the NBA championship in 1977, Josh? Do you know? All right. So let me kill a little bit of time uh, while I type in 1977 <laughs> NBA champion. That's how we do things on oh, this see, show. I thought you were the expert Oh, yeah, it was year. the Portland Trailblazers and uh, Bill Walton. Oh, Bill Walton. Obviously, oh, yeah. Obviously, yeah, you, you know, a major topic on season one of, <laughs> of one year, a great season for the for the NBA. But no, um, it's going to be, I think, a really a good series and, and a fun one. And I'm looking forward to people hearing it. And uh, also, I need to congratulate you, Joel, on um, mm-hmm. fulfilling your lifelong dream of being in a relationship with a coworker. Uh, <laughs> your wife, Janae, is going to be the next Dear Prudence, which we're all so thrilled about at yeah, Slate. I'm- I'm excited about it. We're going to, uh, we have to talk about it with HR, I think, this week. You know, because when you date a coworker, you have to let the HR department know. You have to, you know, declare the intention so you don't run afoul of any workplace rules. So, yeah, we're going to have that conversation. But yeah, no, nah, man, she's going to be dear prudence and she's going to be great. And maybe we should have her on hang up and listen since she doesn't know anything about sports. And, uh, 
throw some stuff she's in, in the, sometime. She's in the family now in, in more is. ways than one. So, uh, you know, a natural, a natural uh, pairing. That's right. Slate family they, takes us all in. I'm excited about it. Okay. The seeds for the NBA playoffs and the play-in tournament are set, and the showcase game is Warriors at Lakers on Wednesday night. The winner is in as the seven seed in the West. The loser might be out. Fun times in the NBA. There's a lot more for us to talk about. The Jazz and the Sixers locked up the top seeds in the West and the East, respectively. The Nets are number two in the East, and with their big three back and healthy, they are the betting favorite to win the title. Joining us now is Vincent Cunningham. He is the theater critic for The New Yorker. He's got a novel called The Party Year. It's coming out soon. Vincent, is that title a reference to the year the Knicks made the playoffs for the first time (laughs) since 2013? A little foreshadowing. Well, you know what? Now I will write a book with that title about this year of partying. (laughs) Funny enough, I just changed the the title of my novel. So that is forthcoming. The Party Year is now something that I can use. All about the festive year that the New York Knicks have had. Let's get into that. Uh, we owe you that much, Vincent. I think yes. we, we sort of dragged you here with the promise of talking about the Knicks, so we have <laughs> yeah. to fulfill their promise. Yes. Um, they're the number four seed in the East. They finished 41 and 31. They're matched up with the Hawks in the first round winnable series. Very Juli- winnable. Julius Randle getting MVP chance. RJ Barrett, not a bust. You might be the wrong person to have perspective on this question, but does it matter in any kind of big picture sense for the league and its fans that the Knicks are no longer terrible? And if you want to just start by reveling a little bit before you get to that, I'll allow it. First of all, I will revel. This is a great year, not only for the New York Knicks, but to your point, for the entire NBA. There's nothing like Knicks games that matter. The other night when they played the last game of the season and the fourth seed was on the line, there was nothing there was nothing better than that. Nobody's had a better time watching basketball than that. I, There's I no important you. game in an NBA season than the one deciding the fourth seed in the East. Everybody knows that. <laughs> That's the definition of importance. But yeah, I think it does matter for the league because, I mean, it's been a sports topic. I mean, you can just, you know, all of us are media consumers. It comes up all the time. No other fourth seed would be attracting this much attention. Um, if the Hawks were having, I mean, they've had a good season, but if it was all about the Hawks turnaround, it would, you know, it would come up sometime on select podcasts. It would not be <laughs> the national TV ESPN debate show topic that it is because, you know, the Knicks just have a special importance. Spike Lee's never been happier. I've never been happier. These are important things for everybody. Well, okay. So, uh, as, as a Houston Rockets fan, you know, I, I'm grateful to the Knicks. Uh, the Knicks have been very important in my life because uh, they helped me to celebrate my first NBA championship. But, like, okay, the Knicks wow. are back. Wow, they're Careful. in the, play- the, the the Knicks are back. They're in Careful. the playoffs. Do you think they're Do you think they're a good team, though, Vincent? Like, I mean, does it does it matter what happens from here on out, or is this enough? It is enough. Okay. If they if somehow they lost in the first round, which first of all I don't like the consensus that they're going to lose to the Hawks when the <laughs> New York Knicks swept the season series, but that's you know that's a topic for another time. Even if they lose in the first round, this is really all, and you can tell this is another thing of like just the importance of it. You can tell this is the bar that we need. Just a competent Knicks team. A competent Knicks team has been just as newsy and important as fun as this like world striding. New York Nets thing in the same city 
three surefire Hall of Famers. The New York Nets. We're calling them the New York Nets now? Did I say the New York Nets? You didn't say the New York Nets. Oh, God. That's fine. I mean, mean, Brooklyn is New York. I mean, it's all fair. (laughs) You know, they are closer to me than the Knicks are geographically, but, you know, they just, they don't matter in the same way. But just the sort of competent Knicks team, it just has a certain flavor. So it does not ruin anything if they lose in the first round. But do I think they're a good team? Yes. Like, if any look at the defensive stats says that they're one of the best defensive teams in the league. You look at Nerlens Noel, you look at uh, the improved defense of RJ Barrett. Like it's a real team and that there are many reasons for that, but they are really good. And I don't think anybody like necessarily is like licking their chops at seeing the New York Knicks. So one of the big questions hanging over these playoffs for me is if we learned anything from the regular season and if the regular season mattered. Because on the one hand, because of the play-in tournament, we talked about this last week, Joel, this was in some ways the most consequential regular season um, in recent years. I mean, the Lakers would normally just be, you know, feeling okay about themselves. Like, okay, LeBron and AD are healthy, we're in, but now they have to worry about just getting bounced immediately. And so there was a lot of incentive to try to get out of the play-in tournament, and I think good on the NBA for increasing that incentive. On the other hand, you have the 72-game season where at the end of it, you have teams one through you know 10, I guess, now in the playoffs that where it doesn't seem like it even particularly matters where they are because home court advantage isn't as much of a thing this year with the crowds not being what they normally would be. And Vincent, you know, we have like um, the Clippers like trying to jockey in a sort of hilarious way to get the four seed as opposed <laughs> to the to the three seed. I mean, after, you know, consuming this entire regular season, now we're getting ready for the playoffs. We also have just rosters like the Nets are going to be whole for basically the first time all year. Do you feel like what you watched this year, I mean, I, I guess, uh, did, did that matter? We were talking about, did the Knicks matter? Did the whole regular season matter? Yeah, it's so strange. I mean, there are teams like, and I just, what I hope is that this doesn't become a model for the future, mm-hmm. where there are teams like the Nets that can coast well enough and that we never even get to see them play as their full roster until the playoffs. It, there, there does seem to be some danger of a model like that taking over, to a lesser extent. You saw that with the Lakers, right? AD and LeBron, you barely saw. Every time I watch the Lakers game, it's like Dennis Schroeder. And, I'm, you know, no thanks. I mean, all respect <laughs> to Dennis Schroeder, but that's not why I'm watching those games. Um, so that I mean, the means, Nets just feel like a test case, right? Like, yeah. can you assemble all the talent, never play but together? Wait, but, but, but that's what makes it basically impossible to replicate, right? Because nobody can do quite what the Nets and the Lakers have done right. year to year, right. right? Like, you know, I mean, because they can, the Nets can still win with two of their three or even one of their three, but right. nobody else can do that, right? We just don't give a shit about watching the Grizzlies, basically. Maybe that's what right. we're saying. We don't care shit about the Grizzlies or the Spurs. We don't, or, we don't care about them. But also, I mean, definitionally in the, in the NBA, like, the top one or two or three or four teams are the ones that we care about. And if those are the ones that are doing this thing, because they are outliers in terms of their roster or whatever, then even if it's a a rare thing numerically in terms of the 30 teams, it will have some sort of outsized symbolic importance, I think, right? If like that becomes right. the thing that the best teams do, it's like, mm, not so great. But I do think the season has been good. And maybe I say this from my vantage as a Knicks fan, where like all year, especially toward the end of the year, we were sitting at four, but we were 
a game away from being at six, and six is so close to seven, which would have put us into the playing games. Every game I cared about, every single game I was like thinking about seeding implications in a way that I haven't done since I was a kid. You know, I was like, I, I have never looked at the NBA standings so often in that way. And I think that they're, I think that the play-in games has been a great experiment. And I think that, you know, to your point, the Lakers have suffered a little bit. Like, so now they're in seventh. Like, there was a a little bit of a, the guys didn't play. And so now you have to win one of these two games coming up. So uh, there's some justice there and I think some added interest. I'm excited to see how many people watch these games. That'll matter, too. Let me ask you this, because so like you live in Brooklyn. Yeah. Why do you continue to suffer as a Knicks fan? Like you've got a team right there, right now. You're in New York. You just called yeah. them the New York Knicks, so obviously, you know they represent. This is why you're something. a Warriors fan because you live in the Bay now. Yeah, right. You say I'm wearing the gold right now. I'm rooting for stuff. <laughs> uh, no, the, the listeners can't see. I'm wearing a gold T-shirt today. Um, but yeah, I mean, in more seriousness. Yeah. What would it take for the Nets to like capture the heart of New York? Because they've got a st- they've New York likes stars. New York likes winners. Uh, Brooklyn is you know an important borough there. Not that you know Queens isn't or whatever, but you one know what the I top mean. five. Yeah, one of the top it's five boroughs there. That's right. Five, yeah, sure. right. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, what what would it take for people to give a shit about the Nets? They've got the better team. They've got the best stars. That one of the best teams. You know what I mean? Like what. Why Why does the Knicks have such a hold on people, even though they've been shitty and they're owned by a terrible person and they've got a cap on how good they're going to be right now anyway? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a couple things. I think demographically, the only way that you're going to see more Nets fans is in 20 years from now when the kids now grow up. Like, I know kids who are – I have friends whose kids are Nets fans because, you know, the the place they go to watch games is Barclays. They've got these great guys. Um, and I think that's the only way you're not going to convert any, there, there were a couple years in there where everybody was so against, especially James Dolan specifically that people like sort of cast these protest votes of like, I'm done with the Knicks, you know? And so, you know, actually the answer is James Dolan. When more of his malfeasance comes to light, maybe people will be like, and I cannot, you know, it'll be like a sort of, um, divest movement from the Knicks. But other than that, like. The Knicks thing runs so deep that it's just, it's never going to happen as a matter of conversion. Um, It'll have to be something that, you know, people are kind of coaxed into. It's funny you say that, though, by the way, because I remember it was maybe two years ago. I mean, time has really flown by. Like, Spike Lee was done with the Knicks, done with James Dolan. He got run up out of, you know, Madison Square Garden. Yeah. And now I see him, you know, got his, you know, Knicks gear on and he's right back at it. I was like, well, damn, I mean, what a habit this must be (laughs) to to come right back like that. Well, that's the thing, because I mean, and this is the amazing thing about sports. Like, this is, you know, to broaden it, this is why the whole Super League phenomenon was such a travesty because it's you know people are able to in a totally unique way separate their fandom of a team from the sort of corporate and ownership all the kinds of things at the top of it so i did an interview with spike lee like over the past year and one i was like so yeah all this stuff that happened with dolan blah 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 and he was like i'm not gonna let that man change the fact that i bleed orange and blue right like there was a separation between what Dolan is and what the Knicks are. So even like that, that reservoir of goodwill, it's never going to leave. And like, he is the happiest anybody's ever seen him right now. You know? <laughs> Anytime you look at Spike Lee, he's smiling. It's, it's amazing. 
I want to say that I have more integrity than Knicks fans because Tillman Fertitta <laughs> is ruining my team, and I gave up. I don't. You you could ask me who are three Joel, players. Come on, on the it's so right easy now. for you to say given the Rockets <laughs> record this oh, year. Oh no 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 no! I'm out, man. I'm out. You're yeah, out forever. Right. You're this out. Is, this is uh, this is purely ethical and not because they're taking oh, yeah. and terrible. Right I'm sure. Now. You're, I'm you're sure. out forever. I'm sure. Probably, maybe. Yeah, probably. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of the Nets, though, how has it been to watch your man Harden just like? kind of be amazing in another situation. Oh, well, see, this is, this you, you knew how to set me off because here's the thing about <laughs> James Harden that pisses me off. James Harden is more of a distributor now with the Nets, right? Like, he's not forced to do the one-on-one thing. By necessity. Thing. Yeah. Right, by necessity. But, like, he was brilliant and an amazing player for years in Houston, yeah. like, and, and and showed up all the time. Like, he played, he didn't do any of this, you know, played all management the time. stuff. Played For all sure. the time. Was a great player, was the foundation of a competitive team year after year. Nobody appreciated him. Everybody's like, oh, it's so boring. James Harden's what's wrong with ba- basketball. He goes to the Nets, and all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, man, you know, James Harden may, may be an MVP <laughs> candidate. He's, you know, the, Nobody he, is he's saying a great that James player. Harden is an MVP candidate. People it came up a couple of times. It came up a little bit. You don't In the watch. middle of the season, they're like, if he plays the rest of it, it was a it was right. a topic. Right, but right, it's true. Right. There has been a lot of, you know who's good? James Harden. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. You know who's great? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was great the whole time. And like all of a sudden he had to go to Brooklyn for people to appreciate him. And that kind of frustrates me. And I'm not even mad at James Harden because I understand why he wanted to leave. Whatever. I'm, I'm glad to see him flourishing. I don't want the Nets to win, but I'm glad that people are appreciating him now in a way that they refused to when he was in Houston. Yeah. All right. Sure. In the interest of uh, appreciating things that are not in Brooklyn, um, just a couple of the things <laughs> that I'm most looking forward to in yeah. the playoffs. The Phoenix Suns, they were mm-hmm. one of the more coherent teams during the regular season. Yeah. Chris Paul, speaking of guys that showed up, Chris Paul was out there. Mm-hmm. They've got a very, very good team. And this is the question that we always are kind of looking at when, you know, like the year the Hawks were just amazing during the regular season. Was this a regular season team or is this going to be a really good playoff team? And the like Chris Paul factor um, weighs enormously there um, as a guy who just very clearly, like the variable that changed here is Chris Paul. Like he came in and they're one of the best teams in the league. And back to like whether the regular season matters, their reward if the Lakers win this game on Wednesday is that they get to play LeBron and AD in the first round. And so I'm really looking forward to that. And then in the East, the Bucks and the Heat, again, another test of what the hell we just watched this year. The exact same matchup we had in the bubble last year where the Heat just embarrassed Giannis and the Bucks. These are like slightly di- different, more than slightly different rosters. I mean, the Bucks have Drew Holiday now, but the Heat were just kind of like wandering around aimlessly all year and yet you know vincent i wouldn't be surprised if you go into this matchup and jimmy butler just like goes off and the bucks are perplexed again but i i i have no idea what's going to happen i really want to see what what happens there and the implications i mean it's it's not like whether Giannis is going to leave at this point but like i think we really want to see Giannis and the bucks like do better than they have done in the in the postseason and and you know last year especially yeah, I would love that. I mean, there's a couple things there. The Drew Holiday thing to me looms incredibly large because that guy can just, speaking of like, you know who's good, he can just <laughs> really defend. Like his perimeter defense He was is good amazing. in New Orleans too, Joel. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody yeah. noticed. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, be mad but, about it then, Josh. Right. <laughs> I, I want to see if he starts out 
on on Jimmy Butler, and that's his assignment all the way through the series. Like because since the All Star break, essentially, whenever Jimmy Butler came back and kind of got back into shape, he's been amazing. Like if you look at what he's actually done without shooting, I mean, shooting twenty four percent or something like that from three point, like not shooting really at all. He just is in control of the games in a similar way, actually, to how Chris Paul is and. Phoenix, it's like even when he's not scoring and you can every sort of move he makes is the product of a an intention and intelligence and really just has strings on the whole thing that's happening. I think it's really up to Giannis to kind of show us something different. Has his ability to break through those walls that every team always sets up at the free throw line, like has that changed at all? But I'm really excited to see that. I think that's going to be like a really fun series. Um, the Suns. I think it's going to be on Devin Booker, man. Because to your point, Chris Paul is Chris Paul. Mm-hmm. And what Chris Paul's going to do is direct traffic, stay out of it until 10 minutes left, and then start making a bunch of shots, right? Like, that's what he does. And it's the, the most amazing thing ever. He decides when he wants to ramify and mean something to the game, and he always does. But the rest of those quarters, it's going to have to be, I think Devin Booker's going to have to like have a true coming out party of like if Devin Booker a Jamal Murray esque exactly exactly right if he's ever going to be that wing scorer that can power you through those first three quarters this is kind of it because I I just don't see a a world where Chris Paul is anything other than Chris Paul right I'm not a rings guy right you know I think that it's dumb like I feel like for instance Tony Romo you know gets unfairly denigrated because he didn't win but yeah for a second Jimmy Butler, you know, because, you know, he had that little thing <laughs> with Carl Anthony Towns. Yeah. I mean, can you chill out, bro? Like, you've never, like, you've been better <laughs> than a, a six seed once in your career. And he carries himself like he's magic. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, he called yeah. he called Carl Anthony Towns a loser. And I punked you and all this other stuff. And, you know, maybe he did punk him. I don't know. We weren't at practice that day. But, like, I don't, do, you guys, <laughs> do you guys find Jimmy Butler likable because He's i just kind of felt like jimmy butler is a lot <laughs> yeah i'm just like yo bro like you've you've been better than a six seed you're you're a career seven seed you know what yeah. i mean <laughs> yeah and like for you to kind of carry yourself like you're Dwayne wade or something is just sort of obnoxious to me i don't know maybe you know so i there's a piece of me that wants to see the bucks do well because i think that Giannis is good and the Bucks have like been, you know, their playoff failures have been sort of overblown. They were embarrassing, yeah. right? Like they are, but like I think that they're still a good team and things can happen, right? Um, yeah. but like this Jimmy Butler thing where like, oh yeah, you're a loser and all this shit. I'm like, come on, bro, you you know, what have you what have you actually done to talk about yourself in the same breath the with like the last greats? year were pretty impressive. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I mean he's mm. um, he's amazing. I, I really do think he's very good, but I mean, we can easily separate these things out. His personality seems kind of miserable, right? Like, I I don't think I want to hang out with Jimmy Butler. He says funny stuff. And sometimes he can be humorous. In some ways, he reminds me of Russell Westbrook in this way. Like, sometimes he can, like, say something, like, cutting and funny in a press conference that makes me think, like, you know, God, you know, there's something there. But neither of those guys I want to, like, whatever, like, have a beer with or something like that. Um <laughs> You don't, Selena Selena you don't want to meet yeah. Selena Gomez? You don't want to meet Selena Gomez? Yeah, wh- whoever. Yeah, I, you know. Um, <laughs> but unlike Westbrook, I see every time very clearly the ways that Butler contributes to winning. Like, I, 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 even though he hasn't been in that situation, to your point about the sort of rings culture or whatever, he's awesome. I really just think he's – I mean, right now he's like – 
whatever. He's like always has seven rebounds, seven assists. All it's just all it's the production is so consistent that I have to give him some credit. But I think that you know Carl Anthony Towns probably has a you know private investigator just waiting for Jimmy to slip because I can imagine <laughs> hating a dude more than he must hate Jimmy Butler. <laughs> All right, Utah and Philly just use this as bulletin board material that we didn't find you interesting enough to talk about in this uh, playoff <laughs> playoff preview. So just uh, show us show us that you were wrong. Vincent Cunningham writes for the New Yorker, and he is a fan of the New York Knicks. Vincent, yes, I am, and yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Coming up next, we'll talk about the opening weekend of the WNBA season with Chantel Jennings of the Athletic. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the 2020 Basketball Hall of Fame class, including Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, star-studded class. We'll also talk about why halls of fame are so significant to players. To discuss all of that, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year, and you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the opening night of the WNBA's 25th season, fans were treated to a glimpse of the league's glorious past, and its promising future. In Minneapolis, WNBA all-time leading scorer Diana Taurasi pulled up in transition after a steal and knocked down a three to give the Phoenix Mercury a one-point win in their season opener. And in Brooklyn, last year's number one pick, Sabrina Ionescu, nailed a tie-breaking three-pointer before the buzzer to lead the New York Liberty to a 90-87 victory over the Indiana Fever. Today, we bring back our friend Chantel Jennings, who is the WNBA and Women's College Hoops Senior Writer at The Athletic. Thanks for joining us today, Chantel. Thanks for having me. So let's start with Sabrina Ionescu, who missed all but four games of her rookie season with an ankle injury, and who may someday inherit the league from Tarasi and the other greats that preceded her. What did you see from her this weekend, and what does it mean to the league to have her back? So I think we saw a player who, you know, she's called this year her rookie season. She's still looking at it as her rookie season, which I think is pretty fair. She's been a calm player, a confident player her entire career, but I think there's just an extra level of comfort having played a little bit last year and then being able to watch the entire season. She looked great out there in terms of just her comfort level, I would say. But I think she's this player that is going to draw a lot of attention to the WNBA. She's a player that in college drew a lot of eyes. 
And when you think back to sort of first picks in the WNBA draft, there really aren't people who got as much attention as Sabrina, even this year with Charlie sort of following up on her, Charlie Collier, who went to Dallas. You know, Sabrina, Sabrina could be a game changer for the league. What is it about Sabrina then that gives her the star power? Because I've actually sort of been curious as to like, what is it about her in particular that makes her a star in this way? She has gotten a lot of attention. She's gotten a lot of ink. The decisions about who gets that ink, that's, you know, probably another conversation for another time to really dive into. But she's also, like, she's hit huge shots throughout her entire career. She's someone that would take any shot, pull up. She's so confident. You sort of see these plays where you, whenever she shoots it, you think it's going in. And so I think people enjoy watching that. In that way, it's sort of superhuman, the same way that we see that in Jewel Lloyd or Diana Taurasi in the league. You just assume it's going in. Arike Ogunbowale, another young star in the league. And I think people enjoy watching that. They seem sort of superhuman in some ways. She's got a flair. She's good at passing. She's got swag. Sort of like Paige Beckers in college now. I think people... You know, teammates love playing with her and, and fans kind of tend to gravitate towards that. You know, and, and looking at the preview that you guys did at The Athletic and other people's previews, one thing that jumps out is just um, the league is always so deep just because there aren't that many teams. <laughs> but with all the players back that weren't playing in the bubble, Elena Deladon, Liz Cambage, it just seems like this league is overflowing with talent this year. Oh, I mean, every year, but especially now. I think this is one of those things that in a typical season, there's 144 spots. This year with the new CBA, there's fewer because of the new Supermax deals for players. So a lot of rosters are only going to carry 11. So it's 138 players, the best 138 players, 139, depending on rosters in the world. You have international players coming in too because they want to play in this league. And so... So more players were getting an opportunity in the bubble because a lot of um, women were opting out, right? And so those players are now getting kicked out of the league. Some of them, but then you have other players like Benajah Laney, who got an opportunity last year in Atlanta. She had kind of been this defensive stopper. Literally, I was talking with Atlanta, former Atlanta coach Nikki Collin, who now coaches at Baylor, last season. And she said, going into the year, Benajah Laney's scouting report was like, let her shoot, go under screens, don't worry about it. Um, she became the most improved player in the league last year and then signed a huge deal with New York in the offseason, has been one of the best stars, I would say, of the first weekend of the WNBA this year playing with Sabrina Ionescu in New York. So there were players who got opportunities last year that might not have otherwise. Taya Cooper in Los Angeles is another good example. Um, maybe not the same level of play as Benajelani at this point, just in her second year, but signed a deal with Jordan Brand um, and is one of the faces of Jordan Brand in the WNBA now. So you have these players who got opportunities in the bubble, made the most of those opportunities, and other players who now are sort of squeezed out of the league because, like you said, people who opted out for social justice reasons or medical issues, they're coming back into the league now and reclaiming their spots. Well, let's actually go back to last summer um, talking about that wobble, uh, the so-called wobble, right? Because I know that it was likely logistically and psychologically a nightmare for the players that had to sort of endure it, right? But didn't it seem like it sort of helped to showcase and grow the game just that setup? Because it seemed like there were more people engaged, just judging by at least, you know, social media engagement than before. 
Yeah, there were more games broadcast last year nationally, so I think that was part of it. I feel like how the league coming into the year in terms of what they were doing within politics, I think that drew eyes maybe if if you're someone who follows politics, you know, maybe you never followed the WNBA before, but suddenly you know who Neka Ogumake is, right? So I think in sort of a broad sense of the word, they're like a big tent league. Um, and they brought a lot of people in last year. And I think being in one place really did allow for them to organize in a way and, and bring more fans in. One thing that I've been thinking about as just a big picture thing is that it seems like um, on the men's side, the college game and the pro game are just becoming more divergent. Like with, we now have the G League kind of taking up some of the top young high school stars. I was just looking at potential all NBA guys and just the number of them who either didn't play in college or just like played for a small school. It's like Jokic, Gobert, Giannis, Kawhi, LeBron, Paul George, Damian Lillard, Luca. If you look at the top WNBA players, there are certainly some exceptions, Chantel, but like most of them are the ones that were famous in college and that were great in college and that we knew in college. And with this name, image, and likeness stuff coming down on the pike now, it seems like the connection between the women's game and the WNBA, the pro game, and the college game is actually probably going to get even tighter as it loosens between the NBA and college. Does that reading seem accurate to you? Yeah, I mean, and I think that goes back to just sort of the scarcity of positions in the WNBA. Like, there are first-round draft picks who were, you know, first-round draft picks a month ago who are not on WNBA rosters for the starting weekend. Oh, wow. Like, wow. there's only wow. 12 picks in the first round, and some of those players did not make rosters. Wow. And so it it comes back, I think, to a scarcity of positions. And often in the women's college game, because there is less coverage overall, sort of the names that rise to the top and get the most ink a lot of times are you know, the best players. It's not like there's this overflowing human interest features on everyone and their mother. Um, as you might see on the men's side in college for the women, it really is sort of the airy McDonald's of the world who rise to the occasion in the NCAA tournament or who sort of bring their program out of obscurity. I, I think that was part of Sabrina Ionescu's draw as well. She helped put Oregon women's basketball on the map. Um, and I think that's a story that that people like, you know, taking a team that didn't win a lot, making them win a lot. Gary McDonald fits into that category at Arizona. So I think it all kind of goes back to that the league needs to expand if it wants to fit the talent that is coming out of the college ranks and the international talent that wants to play here. But doesn't it also make sense then, too, because in the NBA, most of the draft picks are based on like potential, right? Yeah, you, you, You'll get got people that average five points per game in a in Greek Serie A, right? Because, you know, you're looking at them and they're long and they've got a lot of athletic potential. But in college, there's just no, there's nowhere else for that talent to go. They've got to go through for all, you know, three or four years and play and build that following because there's there's nowhere for them to go, right? Yeah, I mean, they go overseas. I think that was interesting seeing Paige Beckers and Caitlin Clark this year, two freshmen in the NCAA tournament throughout the season who were sort of, you know, making jaw-dropping plays throughout the year. Caitlin Clark's range is something that I think any WNBA GM is sort of sitting there being like, we have to wait another two to three years for this girl. But I think this idea of, first of all, they have to stay in college longer than the guys, but then sort of the way that they develop for these players, for these first-round draft picks that didn't make rosters, 
they're going to go overseas. I do think there are some players where you look at them and you think, okay, there's potential here because of maybe their length, their size, their height. Charlie Collier, who had a double-double in her first WNBA game, you know, I'm not saying she's an exact example of that. I think she's going to get a lot better. But where we do see that is when in the first round of the WNBA draft this year, there were three international 19-year-olds drafted. And so that's kind of interesting. I had asked James Wade about this. He drafted a 19-year-old point guard from Australia. You know, how do you, how do you sort of look at a 19-year-old who's playing against pros in Australia and then look at sort of the point guards in the U.S. who are three years older than this player, but playing against college talent in the U.S., you get to see them more often. And he said you just have to watch a ton of tape and, and really try to get feel for their game. Yeah, the number two pick in the draft this year was this 19-year-old from Finland by way of Egypt, who's of South Sudanese origin, Awakir. And I was just actually looking at her Wikipedia page before uh, we got on uh, the segment, and it's like one paragraph. And this one seems like she has maybe the most interesting story of anyone in the entire league. So just, you know, maybe for you, Chantel, other feature writers out there, <laughs> this seems like uh, a great opportunity. But like that makes your point that it is it is slightly more complex than the story that I was laying out, that it's like all college stars go to the WNBA. Maybe there are obviously multiple pathways here and her story is a great example of that absolutely a lot of players might become sort of draft and stash players that was shyla heel who went to the chicago sky to be courtney vandersloot's backup was one of those players where a few wnba gms she said had asked you know are you okay as a draft and stash because again when it comes down to roster numbers a 19 year old are you really going to have her use one roster spot when you're not 100 percent sure it's going to shake out like you can't really take gambles on players in the WNBA. You have to be as close to a sure thing as possible. And as a 19-year-old athlete who's never played in the U.S. before, that's kind of a gamble. And so you're you're looking at it, and these coaches have to make really tough decisions. Um, but a walk, to your point, I think of all the players in the first-round draft, she's not with the wings yet. She's not in market. I think she could have the longest career out of anyone in this most recent draft class. Joel, one of the things that you highlighted um, as we were prepping for this segment was this in-season tournament that they're starting. Yes, the commission is cut, right. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. that's like, seems really interesting. It's like, you know, kind of a more European-style competition. Seems smart for the WNBA to do this. Yeah, what do you make of that idea? I'm curious for your thoughts on it. I'm always sort of confused because I'm not a person that follows European soccer, right? So I don't know how much of that stuff makes sense. Whenever I hear about European soccer style constructions in American sports, I'm also, I'm always like, well, I mean, I guess. Like, Your why protectionist would any- impulses come in? You yeah, wanna- well, yeah, right. Well, I'm just kind of like, I don't know. You, I mean, if you win the commissioner's cup, like, is it important? Like, do, do I mean, how important is that to a WNBA player? Like, a WNBA player coming into the league wants to win a championship and not the Commissioner's Cup. So it's just, it seems to me kind of hard to make the Commissioner's Cup into something important. But Chantel, am I wrong about that? Have you heard players say, oh, I can't wait? I've, you know, there is in prize the money. Yeah, right. I was going to say, there's half a million dollars on the line. Okay. So I think there are some players. Uh, keep in mind that, you know, rookie scale contracts in the WNBA are still. 
you know, Arike Ogunbowale, who is on the previous CBA for the WNBA, is making less than $60,000 this year. She was the leading scorer last year. She's the leading scorer in the WNBA last year. She's making about $59,000 this year. Uh, Obviously, she has marketing deals outside of that, but in terms of her WNBA salary, that's what she's making. And so if the Wings are to win the Commissioner's Cup, every player, I believe, on the winning team gets about $30,000, on the losing team gets $10,000, and then I think the MVP makes 5000 So there's there's a significant benefit to winning, I would say. So what happened in the, the one of the first games of the season? Seattle beat Las Vegas 97-83 on Saturday. Brianna finished with a 28-13. And it was kind of surprisingly lopsided. Because everybody thought that Las Vegas was going to be a team that, you know, had a lot of potential this year. They made it to the finals. They're getting back Liz Cambage. They're getting back Kelsey Plum. And, like, still Seattle handled their ass in the season opener. But you were one of the people that said that Seattle still was the favorite. So, like, did that game sort of go according to what you thought was going to happen the rest of the season? Or did Las Vegas not quite show up in the way that most people thought that they should have on Saturday? So, I think... So my pick is actually Chicago. I think Seattle, when I was looking at Vegas's favorites and not just the aces, but like, you know, betting, they, I was confused about that because there's a few picks in there where, you know, for the betters out there, um, I would say put some money on Minnesota and Chicago because those are, you know, put 10 or 20 bucks down, you can make some good money there. Um, and I think they'll overachieve by Vegas's standards. Um, Seattle was kind of a wild card though. I would say of the Vegas favorites, they were probably more cohesive to me again, just because I think Brianna Stewart is, you know, at this point, the best player in the league all around watching her play. She's sort of unstoppable at this point. I can't believe that she tore her Achilles, you know, not too long ago. Last season, obviously, was her first year back after that. But Seattle, my big question was on defense. They had lost two players in free agency that were key parts of this defense, which was the best in the WNBA last year. And so I sort of wondered how they were going to be able to stop teams, but they were fine. <laughs> like Ezie Megbagor, who is a 20-year-old second-year player, did pretty well on Liz Cambage, who has, I don't know how many inches on her. She held her own, I would say, well enough, certainly well enough for the Storm to win. Sue Bird is still playing. Jordan Canada played well. Brianna Stewart. And so I think they're a team that, at this point, my picks for the finals are Storm and Chicago with Chicago over the Storm. You mentioned Sue Bird is still playing. Let's close out the segment with something that Sue Bird said over this past weekend. The way I always joke about it is 40s the new 30. Although I found out today, oh my gosh, guys, this is just terrible. I found out today that um, our new teammate, Kiki, her mom is my age. We have the same birthday. Like she's 40, the same way I'm 40. It's, she was like, oh, no worry. It's, she's a young mom. I'm like, she's a mom to my teammate. She's like, she's excited to meet you. I was like, yeah, she probably wants to like hang out and get drinks. We're the same age. <laughs> They're the same age, Chantel. I mean, <laughs> bringing the segment full circle, Joel started out by talking about Diana Taurasi and Sabrina Ionescu. We're just bringing generations together in the WNBA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something for everyone. Whether you're a mom or a young person, there's something for everyone in the WNBA. Yeah, Sue Bird is such a great interview. She's so, um, you know, you can hear, even just hearing that clip, you know, you can picture what her face looked like as she was saying that, putting her hands over her face, like, oh my God, I can't believe. Um, Because obviously, you know, there's this idea of extending careers. and, And I think a lot of times people 
are saying it in a very flattering way, like, oh my gosh, Sue Bird is, is playing really well at 40. Meanwhile, I trip going up the stairs and like twist my ankle, right? <laughs> like can't even walk straight, but she's 40 at the top of her game. And again, when you think like in the WNBA, you don't, you don't have anyone on a roster for emotional reasons. You don't have anyone there because they like, you know, there's only 138 spots. You can't use a spot on someone who's not bringing something to the team. At 40 years old, Sue Bird is doing that better than some people believed first round WNBA draft picks would have brought this year. So it's really kind of incredible how she's been able to extend her career in this way and have this WNBA career. Chantel, also, you did a great job of uh, talking up your gambling picks. Maybe we'll get a little DraftKings uh, you know, endorsement <laughs> money going forward. But we're going to bring you back later in the season, talk a little bit more WNBA hoops. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, Chantel. Thanks for having me. And in our next segment, we're going to talk horses and drugs with Joe Draper of the New York Times. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. On Saturday in Baltimore, Rombauer pulled away down the stretch to win the 146th edition of the Preakness Stakes by three and a half lengths. The pre-race favorite, Medina Spirit, could not back up his win at the Kentucky Derby, finishing in third. And it's possible Medina Spirit won't be the Derby winner for that much longer. That victory is currently in limbo after the horse failed a post-Derby drug test, a result that led Kentucky's Churchill Downs to suspend Medina Spirit's trainer, Bob Baffert, from entering other horses at the track. We're joined now by Joe Drape, who's been covering all this for The New York Times. Joe, thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure being with you guys. You wrote over the weekend that thoroughbred racing insiders were rooting for anyone but Medina Spirit. Why is that? It's just a dark cloud over horse racing right now. Medina Spirit flunks that drug test after the derby. They're waiting for the split sample, which will come back in the coming weeks. And that shows the first flaw. There's no central agency or really any rules to can get that drug test tested promptly. It's going to come back 99.9% positive again. Churchill's already said they're going to disqualify him and make Mandaloon the runner-up, the winner. And did they want two legs of the Triple Crown disqualified? Because inevitably, Preakness would have had to do the same. And they also just kind of wanted the horse off the trail so New York wouldn't have to deal with this in three weeks for the Belmont Stakes. Okay, so you, you, there is no central authority, uh, Joe. And why allow the horse to race in the first place then? You know what I mean? Like if, it, if, it, if, if, if it's going to be this much of a problem and everybody's sort of rooting against it and understands that that, that second test is probably going to come back positive as well, then why compete anyway? Well, the Stronic Group, who owns Pimlico, had to make that choice, and due process was out there. Baffert's lawyers said they would go for a temporary restraining order if 
they banned him from the track. You know, Churchill, it was more a symbolic thing. He didn't really run many horses there. Uh, it was just saying good riddance to you. Uh, and New York is just praying that something will come down on that second sample. And then you can take action without being legally. So tell us about the drug that Medina Spirit tested positive for. What is it? And is there reason to believe that it would confer some sort of performance advantage? The drug is called betamethadone. It's a corticoid steroid. You know, it's a cortisone shot. And it is, you know, I don't know if you guys play tennis or golf or have had tennis elbow and you need to get a shot. You feel better. That rule is in place not only on performance, but to keep the horse safe. A horse that is overly painkillered is going to run through an injury and make it more serious. So, you know, you really did what kind of drives me crazy about this, guys, is they talk, well, there wasn't much in it. It was a medication. Well, you know, the rules are the rules. And he knew that. He's racked up 30 medication violations over the course of his career, five in the last year. Once you have to start explaining picograms, you've already lost, okay? So, you know, the rule is the rule, and that's why it should have been upheld. So, Joe, you know, I've, you know, as a person who admittedly does not follow horse racing that closely, I've heard of Bob Baffert. Bob Baffert is, you know, you know, probably the name when it comes to American horse racing. And he wasn't at Pimlico on Saturday and apparently stayed in California. Does he have more of a problem with cheating allegations than the average trainer? I guess that's what I'm trying to get a sense of. Um, obviously, he's one of the biggest winners, right? And the biggest names. But is his problem with cheating like disproportionate to his influence in the in-horse racing? Great question, Joel. And the perception is he's Lance Armstrongian in horse racing. He is the most decorated trainer of modern times. Uh, that was his seven derby. He's had two triple crowns in the last five years. And that's after we waited 37 years to get one in there. Uh, you know, the gamblers say he gets horses of a lifetime three or four of them every time, every year. So there has been, just been a lot of smoke out there. And, you know, that's why nobody was surprised. If it would have been a guy like Bill Mott or somebody, you know, who wins but just has trucked on down the road following the rules, this wouldn't be a big outpouring. But, you know, there's been talk about it. You know, the last five, the five medications in the last year were – really sort of the big triggers for everybody. And then, you know, I uncovered in 2019, justify who he did win the triple crown with. He flunked a drug test before he even went to the Kentucky Derby and the California regulators out there kind of made it go away. And they didn't do anything openly. They had a secret meeting and dismissed it four months after the Triple Crown, four months after that horse had already sold for $60 million. And it never would have come out unless I found it. So there's sort of a sense in the industry that he's too big to fail. Uh, Teflon Bob, you know, you can't take down your most recognizable personality. But it seems like that is changing. I mean, you've, in your reporting, had quotes from people that are high profile in the sport being very publicly anti-Baffert. And does it seem to you like with this latest incident that powerful people within the sport are ready to be rid of him? Is this a kind of inflection point? It's too, it's too 
early to say the dam is broke, but they're starting to get a little cracks in it. And probably more important than the big people talking out on them is they passed a federal bill last year called the Health Integrity and Safety Act. And it will be a board under the FTC and USADA, the people who test our Olympians and who caught Lance Armstrong, take over that part of it there. So finally, you will have a centralized agency with meaningful uh, penalties and top-level testing. And, you know, that at least gives some mirage of fair play and level playing field. But and that, that's what they're worried about is that, you know, they've lost credibility. You know, if five weeks a year in the spring, everybody watches the Triple Crown, but the two million players who bet 365 days a year, that's what keeps them alive. And those guys and women are saying, hey, why am I going to bet a horse that Bafford puts in or against him because it's the playing field level. So, you know, that seems to be, that's to me is the inflection point is they at least realize that they have to make sure they restore some credibility with rules and regulations, law and order, basically. Well, wait a minute. Is, is there not an assumption? Cause uh, you know, I'm an Olympic track fan, right? Like that is probably one of my favorite sports. And I just sort of assume that, the elite on that stuff. There's not that assumption amongst horse racing fans. You know what I mean? I just kind of feel like, well, the incentives are too great to not indulge in that, right? Well, and you're right, Joel. I mean, that's always been the perception long before the Olympics and Ben Johnson. You know, horse racing was was the place where all these shenanigans and skullduggery and chicanery and, you know, Damon Runyon, guys and dolls, uh, mob fixing. I mean, that, that's where it all was. Uh, so, yeah, you kind of factor that into your handicapping when you have trainers winning at a really high level that uh, – raises eyebrows you gotta say well am i gonna leave them off my ticket but you know we, we've kind of gone to the hyper other ultra uber side of that so yes there is and i think that's unfortunate and it's unfortunate for track somebody's got to start somewhere the thing that i found i don't know if telling is the right word but it was definitely a move by baffert was to invoke the phrase cancel culture and saying that Churchill Downs' statement was a knee-jerk cancel culture kind of reaction. He also said initially that there's no way that the horse could have possibly had this medication. Then he came out and said, oh, actually, it did, but I don't know why. Or just his kind of succession of public statements, the level of defensiveness, the use of of these kind of buzzwords and trying to make himself a martyr— is an indication to me as someone who is coming to this, you know, obviously a little more fresh than you are, Joe, of somebody who is not interested in changing, is trying to like win the the press conference. And I can understand just from reading those quotes, why people in the sport would be so aggravated with him and just want to be done with him. You're absolutely right. And it was remarkable to see the five stages of Greece (laughs) Played out, played out during, uh, you know, the news cycle. I mean, he went from Sunday, no way, no how, never treated it with an anger, I feel wronged, to Monday on Fox News of all places saying cancel culture. And, uh, 
you know, they're out to get me. He hinted that the establishment didn't like him. He won too much. And then Tuesday's like, oh, yeah, I did it. <laughs> and, uh, and he comes up with this uh, explanation that is also being scrutinized. He said he used an ointment that you and I use on our cats and dogs when they have bad ears, itchy ears, on a, on a hind rash much like that. Uh, if that's the case, they call it veterinarian confidentials. You know, if this is the biggest trainer with the highest price horses, million dollar horses with veterinarians who are experts and who know the rules. Now, would they really put that on the horse, you know, for 30 days, according to him, right up to the Kentucky Derby? Plus, it could be you could produce. He didn't come to Baltimore because everybody had asked and was going to continue to ask who subscribed it. Where, where is the paperwork? It's supposed to be a seven-day protocol. And, you know, he's not being forthcoming about that. So, yeah, it's it's been a frustrating thing. And back to your inflection point, he's not doing himself any favors. That's why I think people are starting to come out and say, you know, this isn't about you. You know, I've heard a lot of people tell me that, hey, in one of those, either day one or day three, if you ever would have said, I'm sorry, I'm responsible for this and I'm sorry and I'll take my punishment, then, you know, everything would have been better for everyone. Joe, you know, so I'm going to ask you this question as a, uh, as a reporter, right? Because you cover horse racing like you know a lot about it. And we're having you on here to talk about this, right? I, it probably is akin to like if you were a hockey beat writer and somebody has you on after a big fight, right? So how frustrating is it as somebody that cares about the sport covers it that this ends up being the focus? And I'm sure that like people around the sport are just like, oh my God, like, can we just not talk about how awesome the race was or, you know, who, who, you know, who won the Preakness instead of Bob Baffert and cheating? Because that seems like that's like cast this really big shadow over the sport. I've written three books about horse racing. This I'm like the world's tallest leprechaun. Um, it's like, uh, this is all by accident. I never got into this to write horse racing, but you know, for the last 20 years, I've been pointing these things out in print and, you know, they've taken them down to congressional hearings and laid out my reporting. People knew this was coming. I mean, I've got reams of congressional testimony from the 1980s where they were talking about this stuff. So uh, in a lot of ways, I mean, I, I, I can't lie, man. This was a great week as far as, you know, it's fun. It's a fun <laughs> story. It moves to the front page. You know, it, it reflects a lot of the stuff that I have been reporting about over the decades. So it's too bad that that's the way horse racing has to really penetrate the national consciousness. And when you have every late night comic talking about it, you have the ex-president sending out statements about it, you know you have penetrated deep into the culture's consciousness. So, you know, it's an unfortunate way to do it, but maybe that's the shame and embarrassment they're going to need to really get down to business. Whenever I hear commentators read accounts that attribute some level of like consciousness or self-awareness to a, to a racehorse, I always kind of roll my eyes a little bit like the, sh the weight on Medina spirit was too heavy or like he loves to perform in front of a crowd or whatever. Where do you fall on that question of like, does the horse know that it's the subject of controversy? Does the horse know that it's, that it's uh, 
Like, like, and that's the thing with the, like, the comedians are, like, to make sport of, it's like the horses are injecting themselves or something like that. It's like, do the, do the horses know what, what the hell is going on? You know, the horses are sentient beings and they're remarkable athletes. Horse racing's in danger, not only from their self-inflicted wounds, but animal rights people don't want to see this continue. They, you know, I grew up with the circus. There's no circus anymore. And they've really got caught in the ire of those things. The horse doesn't know anything. He's a herd animal. That's why they when they go into the back stretch, they like to stay in a pack together. That's how you train a horse to forget his natural instincts to stay with the crowd and go faster than somebody next to him. So American Pharaoh was a triple crown winner. I wrote a book about him, not about him, but just the whole circus and he was a different horse. I mean, he was like a barn cat. They'd let him come out with hundreds of people around there without on his shank and let him wander around the group to group. And it was, it was really extraordinary. So yeah, they, they do have some personality, but I assure you, I know a horse is a horse is a horse. Of course. <laughs> Joe Drake is a great reporter. He covers all this uh, stuff. For the New York Times. It was on the front page this week. Uh, thanks, Jeff. See you guys. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. And now it is time for After Balls. We're going to talk about the Basketball Hall of Fame in our bonus segment. But before we get to that, I want to honor one of the 2021 inductees, which just got announced it's the 2021 class and there'll be an induction ceremony later on. You might know her, uh, Yolanda Griffith. She was a WNBA MVP. She was a WNBA champ with the Sacramento Monarchs. But her path to the Hall of Fame and to professional glory is just truly amazing. She turned down a scholarship to go to the University of Iowa after giving birth to her daughter while in high school. She then went to Palm Beach Junior College then Florida Atlantic, which was a Division II school at that point in the early 90s. When she was in school, she made money by working for a repo company. Then she went pro in Germany, then joined the fledgling American Basketball League and played for the Long Beach Stingrays. That team folded, and she went to the ABL's Chicago Condors. Then the whole ABL folded, just the whole league. And she uh, went to the WNBA. She got drafted 
by the Sacramento Monarchs. And then that brings us back to where we started, WNBA MVP, WNBA champ. But Joel, this is going to be an amazing uh, induction speech. You know, people are like, oh, I had a rough journey from being a five-star recruit to being a number one pick. But like, people doubted me. Right, she, yeah. she really had a journey. Um, and so I'm looking forward to hearing uh, her talk about it. Um, Joel, what is your Yolanda Griffith? Yeah, my Yolanda Griffith. Uh, so if you're not from Texas, you probably haven't heard much of anything about Sam Houston State University. Uh, it's a decently sized public university about 90 miles north of downtown Houston in a city called Huntsville. Uh, Sam Houston State might not even be the most famous state institution in Huntsville. That designation probably belongs to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, which also includes the state's very active, unfortunately, death row chamber. But Sam Houston State probably deserves your attention, at least some of it, after its football team won the school's first ever FCS National Championship game on Sunday. The Bearcats joined the ranks of 22 schools to win a title in the FCS, or what us old folks used to call Division I AA. Uh, and here's how they did it. We're going to play a clip. Left play clock down to five. Smith back to throw. Fires over the middle. And he's caught. It's a touchdown. A D pulls it in. And Sam Houston has the lead with 16 seconds left. They, they work the edges of the defense all game long. And sooner or later, a slant, some in-cut route was going to present itself. They waited till the- what you heard there was Bearcats quarterback Eric Schmidt connecting with the receiver on third and goal from the 10-yard line with 20 seconds left in the game. That touchdown and extra point provided the game's final margin, a 24-21 victory for Sam Houston State. That win was a catharsis for the Bearcats, who've never quite been able to stand up to the real heavyweights of FCS in recent years. In fact, Josh, Sam Houston State's previous four postseason losses— so that means the, their final games of the season in the playoffs were by an average of 46 points. Okay? So, <laughs> so this year was very different for the Bearcats and obviously for all of the FCS, which had an unprecedented spring season after the pandemic-shortened year the previous year. We all know about that, right? Head coach Casey Keeler told Texas Football that he reinvented his program after a 55-13 to ass-kicking at North Dakota State in 2017. And it's not like the Bearcats then were total failures. Sam Houston State had posted the nation's top offense from 2015 to 2017. Quarterback Jeremiah Briscoe became only the second back-to-back winner of the Walter Payton Award as the best player in FCS. And the Bearcats, believe it or not, were the second winningest program of the 2010s in FCS football behind the aforementioned North Dakota State. So they were good but not good enough. And so, you know, Keeler said that he started recruiting bigger transfers to play on the line. So he's got guys from like Texas Tech, UTEP. I mean, what's big in FCS probably isn't in FBS, but it works in the FCS. The other thing that they did that is really interesting that I did not know that wasn't common among FCS programs, Casey Keeler asked for and was granted two full-time strength and conditioning coaches. I just assumed that all FCS programs had those, but apparently they don't. And that gave them the boost that they needed. Now, I'm sure it was more complicated than that. Sam Houston State has been really good for a long while and probably was going to break through eventually, especially with North Dakota State not being quite as strong as it used to be. In fact, the Bearcats went ahead and finally exercised those particular demons in a 24-20 win over NDSU in the second round. 
And in the semifinals, Sam Houston State made it even harder on itself. They fell behind 24-3 at halftime before rallying for a 38-35 win over James Madison, setting up that title game matchup against South Dakota State. So with that win on Sunday, Sam Houston becomes the first Texas school to claim an FCS or Division I AA championship, which should be surprising as I mean, there's a bunch of Texas schools in the FCS, or they used to be. They used to be what we used to call Southwest Texas State, North Texas State, which is now North Texas, uh, Stephen F. Austin. There's been a lot of great programs in Texas, and this is the first one to win. But to that point, Josh, the FCS champions are an unruly lot. So I just want to ask you a question. You're a college football fan. Can you guess the four schools that have won three or more FCS titles? You'll probably get the first one. This should be easy. Putting putting me on the spot. So North Dakota State. Mm-hmm. Um, is Youngstown State one of them? Yes. Yes. Oh man, you're doing really good here. Okay. And how many more are there? There's just two more. Okay. And they're both. I'll give you a hint. They're both in FBS now. Okay. Can you give me the states? Is one of them Florida school? One of them is a Georgia school, and one of them is a North Carolina school. Okay. Um, Georgia Southern. Yep. There you go. And App State, Ben. Okay, there you go, man. That wasn't that wasn't that wasn't as hard as I thought it was. Going no, to be, I mean but. you. I cheated. You 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 kindly allowed me to cheat with giving those uh, those states. But that was the thing I was going to say is like the reason that Texas maybe hasn't won one of these titles before is that a lot of the schools that you mentioned moved up to FBS, and so the schools that could have potentially won it are no longer eligible, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, you know, a, a couple of other FBS schools that have won that maybe people don't know that have won that, that are now FBS, but that won FCS championships. We've got Marshall. Marshall won two. Yeah. Uh, UMass. I did not know that UMass was ever good at football, yeah, uh, let alone at the FBS level. Western Kentucky, which is now also an FBS school. Uh this one you may have some familiarity with, uh, and its name has changed, and it's from your home state. Can you guess which one that one is? Um, they now go by Louisiana, a.k.a. ULL, a.k.a. USL, a.k.a. Close, close, yeah. close. No, the, the, the old Northeast Louisiana, oh, okay. which is now University of Louisiana Monroe. Okay. ULM. I'm going to give – so this one, this has actually kind of surprised me, and I don't know why it did, but here's – the only other former FBS school that won an FCS championship, and you'll probably be surprised at this, or maybe you won't, I don't know. Boise State. Mm. Boise State won a Division I AA championship back in the 70s. So anyway. So maybe we'll be surprised uh, 50 years from now to know that FBS, or whatever they call it, power Sam Houston State was State. once uh, you know, an FCS champion. So they got the, they got the, the start up. there. They are, I, you know, and I, I just we close it out. I actually went to a Sam Houston State game in 1994, the only time they were ever on national championship, and uh, I went there with my father to watch them play Steve McNair in Alcorn State, mm. and that was like just a fascinating game. Like you could hear, you like I, I'll never forget the the sensation of hearing Steve McNair's passes whistle in the wind wow. from the stands. Like he was. He was unreal. Now, they lost that game. They got the ass kicked, but it wasn't because of Steve McNair. But You sound like Buck O'Neill talking about like hearing Hank Aaron hit the ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or Bob Gibson, or sorry, uh, Josh Gibson hit the ball. As long as I live, there will never be a quarterback better than Alcorn State Steve McNair. That's right. Um, but anyway, I thought about that because today's my father's birthday. He turned 74 today. 
and we went to that game and it's just one of the most vivid memories I have of like my teenage years and I'm so glad I got to do it with him. So Sam Houston State, congratulations and thanks for the memories. And well, that's our show for the day. Uh, our producer this week was Margaret Kelly. Margaret, thank you as always. Uh, to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. If you don't, I'm just going to assume you hate us and we're going to be sworn enemies from here on out. So for Josh, Vincent, Chantel Jennings, Joe Drape, I'm Joel Anderson. Remember Zelmo Betty. And thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.